CUA is the voice of urology in Canada. Europedia Canada is your resource for education. Visit CUA.org. Okay. Well, good night, everybody. Oh, no, good night. Good evening, everybody from across Canada. Uh, tonight's CUA webinar is Management of Medication Refractory Overactive Bladder. It's available in both French and English. If you would like to hear the webinar in French, please click the interpretation button. Um, throughout the presentation, please send in your questions uh, because then we can interrupt our talk and address them uh, at that point. Um, so you don't have to wait till the end, although there will be a question period. And if there's any disruptions in the program, uh, just please remain connected and the expert Cassian in the background will get us set up again. Thank you. There. Um, so we have Kevin Carlson in the bottom corner there. We have Greg Bailey in the upper corner and then myself in the middle there. And I did exactly what um, they said don't do and that I let my phone um, go quiet so the advanced slide went dark. So Greg won't make that mistake. Um, in terms of uh, disclosures, we wanted to ensure that everybody was aware of these disclosures uh, for tonight's event. Uh, in preparing these slides, we adhered to the Code of Ethics, the CMA Guidelines, and Innovative Medicine Canada. In terms of accreditation, this is available for Section 1, one hour of credit through the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons. And we would like to let everybody know that this is uh, a commercial support from AbbVie with an educational grant, um, as well as logistical support. Okay, in terms of learning objectives, when we set about to uh, create this slide deck, we wanted to review the treatment options for medication refractory idiopathic overactive bladder. So you'll notice that we're not addressing neurogenic bladder tonight. We wanted to discuss the best practices in managing OAB in urologic practice. And then we wanted to identify some strategies to overcome barriers to the various treatment options for medication refractory idiopathic OAB. Um, I, I'm going to go first and then uh, Greg will follow and then Kevin will follow. Um, and I'll start out by a few opening slides with regards to overactive bladder and the need for options beyond pharmacotherapy. Uh, most people are familiar with uh, the CUA guidelines on overactive bladder. And tonight's event is really speaking about the third line options. So we have first line, we have the second line, and then we have the third line. And some of the audience that may be checking in are interested in these third lines. Perhaps they're veterans in the third line measures, or sometimes uh, people are just inquiring as to what they may be. Um, the third line uh, options in Canada are, um, I'm going to say, BONT, but that's Botox treatment or PTNS or sacral neuromodulation. And just to get a discussion going, uh, Greg, in, in Eastern Canada or Atlantic Canada, what, what's available to you for your patients for third line? Um, so, so currently we have Botox and Botox is being used in, in a bunch of different hospitals in, in Atlantic Canada. We do have sacral neuromodulation in Halifax. Uh, Ashley Cox does that. <coughs> 
and we have very limited access to posterior tibial nerve stimulation. Um, it had been offered by one of the gynecology clinics for a while, but I think the, the funding has run out. It's pretty resource intensive, so that's what we have. Okay, now out in Calgary, Kevin, can you speak to our situation in terms of what's available in, in Alberta or even sure. Western Canada? Sure. So we have access to um, Botox uh, injections, of course. Um, we did have also a, a gynecologist offering a PTNS in the community. I'm not sure if that is still running or not. Uh, that is outside the hospital system. And uh, we are able to refer patients to Edmonton for sacral neuromodulation. Uh, we used to have a program in Calgary, but uh, lost funding for it. So those patients are now referred to uh, one center in Edmonton that manages a lot of Western Canada uh, with uh, a long wait list. Mm -hmm. And so we, we basically continued to send people to Edmonton almost to get them on a list with the hope that um, that, that might pressure or make a change, but very difficult to access in Canada uh, for, and for most people beyond, beyond Botox therapies. Um, why would we even talk about things beyond second line? I think each one of us would be familiar with the struggles that patients have with overactive bladder medications. And there's a number of reasons for these struggles. Uh, efficacy, maybe it just is not enough treatment. Um, the side effects, um, depending on the class of drugs, but dry mouth constipation and any concerns with cognition. Uh, patients may say, I'm on too many medications already, doc. And then of course, every province is different with regards to coverage and cost. And so all of those factors may lead us to move on to something else. Uh, I did wanna make mention of the cognitive side effects. I think many of us have got questions uh, from patients in terms of anticholinergic burden or worry about cognition with regards to uh, being on too many anticholinergics or anticholinergics and because the elderly are more susceptible. So I think that that's, that's pushed us to look at some of the third line therapies. And I, I gave this presentation to our nurses recently and I, I said, do you know what happens when we um, write a prescription for you know, a solofenacin or, or mirabegron, and they, I think they were surprised um, in cystoscopy that, that the patients didn't stay on them forever, but the, the data uh, shows that at the end of one year, um, at best, less than 40% are still on the medications and people discontinue them very quickly. So even if they're good treatments, um, people may not stay on them and they definitely don't stay on them without a lot of encouragement. So. That really, again, has forced us to look at other options. Um, there's a number of factors as to why people stop the medications. Interesting that smoking is a factor. Um, the patient's uncertainty about the need for multiple daily doses of medications. Questions that people may have about the severity of anticholinergics, more severe persistent symptoms that aren't being addressed. and um, People may not be used to taking a medication as I'll often ask people, are you willing to take something um, to treat your bladder symptoms? Um, in this uh, webinar, we put a number of vignettes basically as opportunities uh, to talk about index cases. So this is a 73 year old female, uh, G3P2, uh, bothered by OAB symptoms, and she has urgency incontinence. Um, she's been on solofenacin 10 milligrams, so a big dose, 
without optimal response, um, no concerning features on her exam. And so I suppose I, I could ask Greg, what treatment options are available for this patient? Um, and we might step back before we go to third line. There's probably one or two moves that we can make in the second line that we would probably each make. So maybe a comment there, Greg. Yeah, so pretty typical patient for all of us, Richard. Um, so this person I probably would try on uh, Mirabegron or another anti-muscarinic. Um, and some people will get a, a response to one where they didn't get one for the first one. And if that didn't work or even the same appointment, I will mention that we have uh, other therapies such as Botox, sacral nerve modulation, um, posterior tibial nerve stimulation. Um, just to sort of plant the seed, but I usually will try two or three before I throw in the towel and, and move on to something else. And and some of these I patients that, don't. Yeah, and I think it's very fair because I think across Canada, one of the things we learned um, from putting this together is each province may have a different mandatory hoop to jump through before you can get to, to bladder Botox or another therapy. So I think most of us would certainly introduce Mirabegron single accommodation, try a different anticholinergic. But there will be times where we'll move on to what we call medication refractory. And so on a botulinum toxin A would be what is probably most available in Canada. And that's what we're gonna spend the next section talking about with professor and head, Dr. Greg Bailey. <laughs> Thanks Richard. Uh, so yeah, that clinical vignette is is a, a fairly typical patient that all of us are going to see in our clinics pretty much any time we have a clinic. And um, I, I, I forgot to mention that I think uh, pelvic floor physiotherapy is also gaining traction in our, at least in our community, and I think many communities across the country. So if you can um, align with some good pelvic floor physiotherapists, you should definitely include that in your, in your options. In terms of Botox, it, you know, I think many people across Canada have had experience with Botox um, and gaining more and more because we accumulate these patients for, for well over 10 years now. And we started off with uh, multiple sclerosis and spinal cord injuries doing some studies, and we've extended that on. And I, I think the, the, the number of patients with refractory idiopathic overactive bladder has grown substantially. So just want to give you some, some background. Some of it's evidence-based and some of it is, is really just practice patterns that we've all developed. And we sh we've shared ideas when putting this talk together. Um, mechanism of action. There'll be a little quiz on the end of this for Richard to draw that, um, to draw that little uh, diagram. But essentially, <laughs> Botox does something in the terminal nerve ending that um, eliminates or reduces the chances that acetylcholine can be released from the vesicles. I'm not going to get into any, any more detail than that. It's something that's not uh, permanent, and, and um, the effects of the Botox will, will wear off after about six to, to nine months on average. How do we do it? And, and you know, when you're considering using Botox, you want to try to have a program set up and in your clinic that is easy, straightforward, well understood by the people helping you, either your, your associates, your nurse, the nurses who work with you, with you, technicians. But basically it's reconstituted. It comes as a, it looks almost like a film on the bottom of a, a small vial. We inject about um, up to 10 cc's in that vial um, and gently swirl it around and it's reconstituted. If you're lucky enough to have it in your hospital pharmacy, the pharmacy will reconstitute it 
uh, for you and delivered in a syringe. In Halifax, we're not so lucky. The patient has to actually bring the, the medication themselves or it gets sent by a, a special pharmacy. Um, local anesthetic may be used. Um, I think all of us started off using local anesthetic. It does create an extra step where a patient would come in 20 or 30 minutes ahead of time, be catheterized. Typically, we would use uh, 40 cc's of 2% lidocaine, leave it indwelling in the bladder for uh, 20, 30 minutes. Some, some patients will sort of flip over on their side a bit. Um, in the last year, I think somewhat due to COVID, I stopped using local anesthetic. I don't do an indwell on patients. I, I do use local anesthetic as a jelly uh, a few minutes before the cystos could be just like we would for anybody else. But it depends on how easy it is to introduce into your clinic. Um, and, and, and I must admit, without any evidence, just anecdotally with probably several tens or hundreds of patients, uh, it's been well tolerated without. There's a bunch of different needles that are available, and we're not going to get into the ones that we recommend or list, but, but certainly um, that information can be shared. Essentially, they can go down into a flexible or a rigid scope. Um, I use flexible scopes for all of them, and I'll take you through a little video. But it basically, you inject them starting behind the trigone, up the base and body of the bladder. Um, you stop below the dome. You don't really have to go lateral too much. And generally it's, it's around 10 to 15 or 20 injections. I used to do 20 routinely, and now I do 10 routinely. And basically just draw uh, a few lines up from the trigone outwards. Hey, Greg, the, the yeah. local anesthetic, if you skip the local, are you still doing an in and out catheter to drain the bladder? Or will you um, just drain it with a cystoscope, say for a rigid for females, but a male, Obviously, if you look in there and it's you know filled and cloudy um, with a flexible scope, what do you do then? Yeah, in those cases, I will uh, use suction. We have a suction in our clinic, and it'll just suction them out and fill them up with with sterile water. And okay. um, because <clears throat> because the the you, you never quite know how much is in there, uh, and you can't put the needle in after the scope goes in. The needle has to go down the scope, and I'll show you why because it can damage the scope. I generally will have a look in with the scope first, um, either add some water if, there's, if it's not distended enough, or like you say, if it's really hard to see, I'll take all that uh, urine out and, and put all fresh water in. Take the scope out and then put the needle back in, pass the scope the second time. And I'll, okay. we'll explain just, that. Just before you click on this, there is a question, what form of pelvic floor physiotherapy would help an OAB? And certainly I wish we had a physiotherapist on here. Um, I'm always amazed what the physios can do. They, they have a number of techniques for predominantly urgency suppression. So um, <clears throat> I don't, I, I, I'm not even gonna pretend to have been through a session myself. I just, I just know that they do a lot of education. They do a lot of cognitive work. They do a lot of behavioral therapies, um, things that we miss because they spend an hour with people and then they can do uh, both exercises as well as, as well as you know, internal things to make sure that people are, are tightening the right muscles to turn off a contraction, for example. But um, they're just amazing resource. Uh, every time they speak, I learn something. Go ahead with the video, Greg. Okay. So this essentially is going to show, uh, we're placing a needle down the, the uh, it's an Olympus scope. And on the tip of that needle, there's a blue rubber uh, protector 
And when I first did this a number of years ago, I thought, what the heck is this? And I took it off before I passed it down the scope and I ruined the scope and I did it again. I thought, why, why does this keep happening? And I didn't know that, that it was to protect it. So you have it protected. You pull this, the needle back in so you can barely see it. You should prime the needle with a CC of normal saline just to get the air out so that you don't lose the, the, um, the Botox. You usually have somebody helping you and just behind the trigone in the center of the bladder, you push that needle in about two millimeters or so. And you do want to see some movement of fluid underneath the mucosa, but deep enough that you're not getting a transparent bleb. Um, in this particular bladder, it seems quite distended and you can see that needle pops through quite easily. If you don't have enough um, volume in your bladder, it's, it's going to be a little bit more wrinkly and it's not going to go in as easily. You, you simply draw a line upwards about one centimeter apart. And I typically will get four or five injections up the middle and, and three or four up each side, starting from the left and right irriteric orifice and sort of heading up in a, in a somewhat of a diagonal uh, upwards uh, position. And you can inject them. I will tell you the most painful one in my experience is the one that's closest to the trigone. So uh, you, you may actually want to go backwards, um, but it really doesn't matter. M most people tolerate this extremely well. They will ask you, does it hurt? And you, you can say, well, I, it, you're going to feel it, but nobody, I've never had anybody jump off the table and, and, and tell me they're not coming back. Hey, Kevin, is you there know, anything, that's where I was just going to ask Kev with that video, yeah. anything that, that he would do differently? I, we, we didn't see all the injections, but... Any thoughts there, Kevin? Um, well, the the um, amount of distension is uh, is a tricky part because um, that bladder to me looks really distended, and yeah. um, you don't want to get to where they start to contract around around the scope, of course. So, for me, as soon as you've lost the wrinkles, as as Greg mentioned, um, that's that's pretty much where where I begin injecting. But it does make a the amount of distension and stretch on the mucosa makes a big difference, especially with a flexible scope, I find, in, in how well you're able to, to penetrate the mucosa and, and get the needle in. Um, early on, I know we, waste, we probably wasted more Botox than we would have liked because the needle wouldn't penetrate a, uh, an unstretched bladder. Yeah, okay, great. Go ahead, Greg. Yeah, the other thing I'll mention, for those of you who are starting Botox, um, it, it is easier to do with a rigid scope. It's more, I think it's less comfortable for the patient, but it's easier because the scope doesn't bend. So what you push goes into the bladder. There are bladders that are, you know, especially if it's a bit bigger, you're off to the lateral side of the bladder. Um, the flexible scopes will start to bend and, and it's a little bit more tricky. Obviously, you'll learn to overcome that. And, and, and I do. I think most of us do flexible on everybody. Um, who are the candidates? Well, we already talked about people who are refractory to those conservative and medical therapies. I think that's pretty straightforward. Who shouldn't we do it on? Uh, those rare patients who tell, who, who tell you they have a hypersensitivity to, to either Botox itself or, or some ingredient in the formulation. I, I must admit, I haven't come across that. Um, active UTI, recent frequent UTIs. You know, recurrent UTIs doesn't bother me but I'm, I'm hesitant to do it in somebody who has an active symptomatic UTI. And we'll talk a little bit about doing pre-op cultures. And then that whole discussion about, are you willing and able to do CIC if you have to? The incidence of, of urinary retention after Botox and idiopathic OEBs 
it's it's reported at about five percent. Um, the, the the amount that I would say that actually need to do your uh, self catheterization is lower. I used to teach everybody when I started, and that's not uh, practical. I mention it so that they're aware. Um, and if it's somebody who's really, really scared about that possibly doing, that's the person I'll send to one of our nurses uh, and see if they can do it, just, just so that they don't sell themselves short. Most people are fine with you mentioning it and you don't have to do it. The special populations, obviously we have no data on pregnant people. Uh, breastfeeding, exercise caution, I gotta admit I have not done it on somebody knowingly breastfeeding. I'm not sure that it would be a big problem, but it's something you have to decide on your own. An anticoagulation patient is common. I mean, so many of our patients are on either antiplatelet or anticoagulant therapy. And I think you should ask them to stop it if it's safe to stop. Um, but those patients will show up in your clinic and they forgot to stop it. And what do you do? That's up to you. I typically go ahead and do it. Um, and I haven't had any problems. Worst case scenario is one of those little tiny holes in the bladder, those puncture sites uh, requires a little cautery and that's not a big deal, but, but generally it's not a problem. Um, yeah. There is a study that uh, looked at, sorry? Oh no, I'll, there were two questions that came up, but I think go through this and I think we'll be able to, we'll stop and just touch base on the two questions. Um, so after you've done the Botox, what can you expect and how do you cancel your patient either before they choose or after you've done it? I, I usually tell them the day of, of the procedure that it, it, it kicks in in about five to seven days, one to two weeks. They may see maximal benefit up to about 12 weeks. So there is uh, there can be improvement with time. And we expect about 80% of patients will have an improvement in their symptoms. And that's a reduction in urgency, urgency incontinence and frequency. Nocturia, as you know, is the most resistant to change. We do see it sometimes. I would not advise um, setting expectations high for patients who are looking for treatment primarily for nocturia because you will be disappointed. Um, side effects are pretty minimal. Uh, most of the studies do demonstrate a UTI incidence of between 5 and 15%, um, probably just from the technique itself. And but there is something about Botox that increases it over placebo. Um, a little bit of blood in the urine for uh, usually just that day, it usually is gone. And the inability to void or a real slowing down of the stream. And that's one thing I do tell patients, look, if you get home and you really struggle to void, just call my office because it might be that you're one of those one in 20 people who can't void afterwards and we may have to get you in. Um, we'll get into a little bit about reinjection, but just, just let your patients know it lasts usually between six and nine or 10 months. Um, most medical insurance plans will not allow you to uh, have Botox covered less than six months, in, including the provincial formularies. And the other question that comes up is, Doc, I'm on solifenacin. Uh, can you guys hear me? Yeah, we all froze there for a sec, but you're back. Yeah, okay, we all froze. Um, I think it was groundbreaking what you just said there. Can you just do that again? <laughs> Patients will ask, what do I do with my medications? I usually tell them to stay on them if they start to feel a lot better on the Botox to come off them. There's no rule for that. Some patients come off, some patients do better taking uh, their medications along with Botox. Okay, there's a, just hold on, Greg. There's some amazing points here. And, yeah, okay. so there's a couple here. The, the first one is... Uh, do you give uh, prophylaxis antibiotics pre-Botox and what do you prescribe? We're going to cover that in a second. 
Has anyone had Botox toxicity? So I suppose when we all started, we were there were rabbits that might get some generalized weakness. And so, you know, after thousands upon thousands of injections between the three of us, um, has anybody been able to attribute some type of, let's say, systemic response to Botox or I had a patient that blank, blank, blank. Can you, you Greg and then Kevin? Uh, no, uh, I mean, I, ha I haven't, I haven't seen that. Um, uh, and, and, you know, we give much lower doses than the, than the physiatrists give for, for their muscular neurogenic problems. Kevin? Yeah, Kevin. Yeah, I did. Uh, early on, I can think of two patients, one who, uh, did have some generalized weakness, um, but was also under the care of a, of a physiatrist. And uh, uh, we, we both made some investments um, going forward. Um, the other was I did early on have some, um, what seemed to be an allergic reaction, a florid cystitis <clears throat> um, without uh, any evidence of infection um, that, that, last, that lasted a fair while and, and eventually responded was it could have even been uh, the, the lidocaine or anything else, but uh, that was that was early on, and I've I've had nothing um, since. Okay, um, and and I would I would agree. I I've even done myasthenia gravis, um, and we we published on that case report on doing it with myasthenia gravis with the approval of the neurologist. Um, obviously, that's one of the contraindications, but. Um, I believe it's so local that you can get away with it uh, with the patient's consent, the neurologist, and, and we published on it. Um, somebody asked, do you recommend Botox for patients with um, DHIC? Um, I, I would probably comment and say that, you know, it, it may work great for the DH part, but they may, they may be more liable to need to catheterize. That might be my, that might be my recommendation is that you know, sometimes we make the bladder so quiet that um, you need to catheterize. Um, in a patient with a heavily trabriculated bladder, you know, do you focus on the thickened muscle fibers or do you try to get into the, the cellules? Uh, do you avoid injecting into a bladder diverticuli? Uh, interesting question there. Um, in the video, it looked like he, the, the person was going straight into the muscle fibers. And um, I would think that we, I, I'm, I'd probably do a bit of a hybrid I mostly try to avoid blood vessels um, that are obvious, uh, but I, I don't really know because you see it diffuse into the wall. So I think that's the more important thing for me is just, just putting the needle into the wall such that I can see basically it look like it's spreading um, its wings underneath. Um, I don't know if anybody has a strong thought about that. Yeah, I don't, uh, Rich, I don't have a strong thought on the trabeculation and diverticuli. I don't, um, I've tried every different combination of permutation. I don't see that it matters too much, um, whether you inject into the muscle fibers or, or um, away from them. Um, I did want to make a point about the DHIC um, question. We did, when we did look at our elderly um, patients, it does look like, you know, reten retention is, um, increases with increasing age. So, um, Greg, Greg said about 5% of idiopathic OIB patients have retention, but there is an age, I think there is an age relationship. So, um, 
you know, at those older elderly patients that may have DHIC, um, if they're if they're spontaneously voiding and not requiring catheterization um, before Botox, I, I certainly counsel them that they're at higher than average risk of needing to catheterize after the procedure. Because I do think there's an age age effect um, on contractility there. Perfect. There's there's a question about anticoagulants, which we'll get to, and then somebody asked about Botox into the sphincter. So we'll touch base on those, but let's touch base on the UTIs and antibiotics. Go ahead, Greg. Yeah, sure. So yeah, UTIs are you know something that you do have to address the the potential of getting UTI, but also the patients who come in with with UTIs, and there's so many patients with asymptomatic bacteria. So in in my own institution. Um, and, and it's, it's, it's a bit of a hassle sometimes. We do have patients do a urine culture one to two weeks out. So they get a package sent with their appointment, a urine culture requisition. And for those of them who get it done, which I would say probably 75% get it done, if they do have a positive culture, then I can get them on antibiotics at least a week before the procedure. If the culture comes in the day before, which often happens, then I, I will usually cancel the procedure. Now, interestingly, if the patient shows up and didn't have a culture and I look in and I've already mixed up the Botox and, and I can tell they have an infection, if they don't have much in the way of symptoms, uh, and I'll ask them before I put the scope in, then I won't, then I, I will go ahead and, and, and give them. Uh, I'll, I'll do a urine culture at the time. I'll empirically start them on antibiotics and tell them to, to call me if they have any major issues or go to emergers. I've not had that problem. And, and I think that those of us who do a lot of neurogenic bladder patients, in particular those with indwelling catheters, because this does work with patients, it works well with patients with suprapubic or indwelling catheters with, with bad bladder spasms, you know, they're, they're all infected. And mm -hmm. it's, extreme, it's extremely rare that I would see somebody have a major, it's not zero, I mean, it can happen, but it's, it's, it's surprising how many of them don't run into problems with, with a, you know, a bad infection. Yeah. Any comments you guys have on the on the infection part? Well, most of our Botox is done in an outpatient clinic, and we're not doing cultures a week before. Um, we have a few patients, maybe pain patients, IC patients that, um, or people that didn't tolerate it well, that we'll do in the OR, and they may go through pre-op with a with a with a culture. In which case, I would treat a positive. Um, we do give a single dose beforehand. And then uh, some patients that are experienced will ask for a self-start phosphomycin uh, package, and and I'll usually give them a culture forms and try to get them to do a culture. But you know these are professional patients. A lot of times we see them, you know, two three times a year, um, and th they really know their symptoms well. So you develop a really good relationship with these patients. Um, it's a very satisfying part of anybody's career, and so. I think you, you 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 do it on the fly, but but if somebody wanted to start out, I think it would not be harmful to do a culture, but I think you'd have to be cautious to not cancel, because it would be tempting to cancel a positive culture. But really, you got to ask them: Are you symptomatic? Because yeah. if you're not symptomatic with an acute UTI, I think you should proceed. Kevin, what would you do if you looked in and saw, you know, you didn't have a culture, the person was asymptomatic, but you you saw that you know, cystitis cystica everywhere. Yeah, I, I proceed with the uh, with the injection uh, as well. And I, I would agree with Rich, you, you, 
you end up uh, individualizing a game plan to a lot of patients over over time. Some you culture ahead of time. Some you always you you, you treat ahead of time. Some you some always want a prescription on their way out the door. So, um, hmm. um, but in terms of looking in, seeing cystitis, uh, I it I don't uh, I don't cancel. Um, I'll, I'll go ahead and do the do the injection if there are. Um, you know, if there's an angry looking area or catheter reaction or something, I generally avoid that area. Um, but otherwise I'll proceed. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, interestingly, we, we were, we had an article poll that looked at a lot of different antibiotics, both oral IV and a combination. And, and, um, this slide basically says that there was, there was no single antibiotic, nor were any of the antibiotics any better than placebo in, in um, reducing the rate of, uh, of antibiotics, sorry, of UTIs associated with the procedure. So um, it didn't seem to, uh, doesn't seem to make a difference. I think that those of us in urology, uh, many people have their own practice patterns of whether they're doing, well, prostate biopsies, we always do, but whether you're doing a TURP, a TURBT, or a ureteroscopy with laser of a stone, whether or not you're giving antibiotics at the time or, or not. And I think that the evidence and data is poor for all that stuff. And we probably all have our own comfort level with that. So I do give a prophylactic antibiotic for Botox. And we, are, we give a single tablet to pro um, pre, but if the patient says, I don't want it, I'm not gonna fight them. If they have an allergy, we might give something else. Um, and then if I'm worried, I might give a self-start, but I really do also try to limit the antibiotics and give a culture. Um, that they could do with a clean catch if they can. <clears throat> All right, so back to the, the clinical vignette. Um, same lady, 73-year-old, urgency, frequency, incontinence. Um, Solofenacin at, at a full dose isn't really working. So she's interested in having Botox, but she's on a Pixaban for her atrial fibrillation. And the question is, what considerations are necessary for treating this patient? And again, it's a common scenario. Um, uh, and, and, you know, we weren't sure whether there was any uh, data available in the literature on this, but there, there is, in fact, a study that looked at 63 out of 530 patients who were on either an anticoagulant or an antiplatelet therapy, typical age, um, and a whole a variety of different medications. And they reported a hemorrhagic event in one patient. Um, that one patient required an admission overnight with a two-way Foley catheter for observation, no, no CBI, and went home the next day. Uh, in my own experience, uh, I've done it on patients on warfarin, on apixaban, on plavix. I never stop ASA. I, I ask the patients to stop the, the uh, warfarin and anticoagulation if it's safe. Uh, same thing with anything else, though. If they're on it because of recurrent PEs, um, or they've had strokes while they're on their warfarin uh, uh, for their AFib, I tell them not to stop. And I just tell them, look, it might be a bit more bleeding or I may have to cauterize. So like anything else, stop if it's safe. And if you, don't, if you can't stop or they show up, have a, have a discussion with them. And most of them, it's not a big deal to proceed. Any comments from you guys? Um, well, I, yeah, I don't stop it. Um, I'm probably more mindful when I do the needles um, I'm trying to avoid blood vessels. I'll, I'll watch the, each of the sites. Um, sometimes I will put direct pressure on, um, on a site 
um, just to see if I can stop. And I put the even even the needle or the tip of the scope on there. But as a rule, I don't stop. Um, again, in thousands of injections, I, I have had a clot retention. Um, and and uh, but as a routine, I, I, I don't stop it. Um, I would only stop it if there was something else going to happen, like a, and I'll say like a, a an interstitial cystitis patient where I might do a cystal biopsy and fulguration as well as the Botox. But as a rule, I, I haven't stopped. Kev? Yeah, I'm the same. I, I don't stop them as a routine. Um, I think that uh, you just, we're going to get into this in a later slide, but you need to have some um, to be prepared to deal with uh, with a persistent bleeding injection site, which is fairly uh, simple. Um, I have over, again, thousands of injections like you, Rich. I have had um, gotten into troublesome um, bleeding with a couple patients over the years, and uh, there's a few people I've I've moved over to the day surgery unit um, and uh, have um, have assessments done by internal medicine um, rather than the outpatient uh, clinic. But um, so that's a few out of many, many that uh, that we treat. So as a rule, I think the average patient doesn't need to stop. I think where you might get in trouble is particularly neurogenics or catheterized patients that have um, you know, more uh, reactive uh, tissue or friable tissue, if they have any, you know, chronic inflammation, um, they may be a little more susceptible to bleed and a little tougher to stop the bleeding, but um, the average patient with idiopathic OIB uh, doesn't need to stop. Somebody asked a question, um, if they had um, stop, forgotten to stop, um, would you inject, say, 20 uh, units or let's say two, two cc's into five sites instead of 10, 10 units or 1cc into 10 sites. Um, I suppose it depends how it's going. So if you put the needle in and, oh my God, it's bleeding, um, you might try and get out of there with as few more, a few pokes as possible. If it seems to be going well, uh, or they haven't had a problem before, you might go ahead with your seven or 10 or, or 15 sites. So I think it is case by case, but, but certainly, um, I, I think definitely if somebody's having a lot of discomfort, I may do the as few a needles pokes as possible and put a little bit more volume into each site if I can get away with it. But a good question. So ahead, as Greg. you can see, the the urologists in Alberta really are cowboys. For, for I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Um, so this, so yeah, you know, we all do things a little differently and, and it's always good to share these, uh, these practice patterns because, um, from now on, I'm not stopping anyone's coagulation. I'm just quote, quoting, quoting you guys, um, number of injection sites, my gosh, it's all over the map. I was doing 20. Now I do 10 and here's a couple studies where they looked at, um, 10 versus 20 versus 40 sites and saw no real difference. So the, the take home from the first study is that 10 sites was adequate enough, uh, one cc each. Um, and then another study looked at uh, doing 100 to 300 units at either one, just a single injection site or three sites and showed fairly equivalent efficacy and uh, adverse events. So we're not there yet. There hasn't been enough uh, work done in, in, in research to determine what is the optimal number of sites. What I can say is it probably doesn't matter. It's, it's probably somewhere between 5 and 10, 15, 
and I just feel better to spread it out around the, the bladder a little bit. I'm, I'm a little hesitant to shoot it in one place and hope that I got the right spot, but obviously it, it perhaps will know in, in the future. Um, this really brings us, to, and I, I just have to be mindful of time. I think that perhaps we, we, we did talk about many of these questions, so I don't think we'll go through this. The, the only one with urodynamics, I don't think you need to do urodynamics before Botox. You may end up doing urodynamics, but if you have somebody with overactive bladders, refractory to all the other stuff, you gotta be thinking Botox. And urodynamics, I don't think are, is gonna make a difference. Any any, any comments from you guys? I would agree, because I mean, what if it doesn't show it? I mean, if it doesn't show OAB, you're still probably gonna go ahead with it, because it's yeah. mostly Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, my last slide, basically, what do you do afterwards? Um, I get them to call me if they have any major problems in the first week. If you have somebody in your in your team that can give them a, a quick call that week, perhaps that's nice for the patient. We don't do that. I see them back about three weeks later and do do a, a Euroflow and, and a post-void residual. I do pick up the odd retention. I do not put all self-cath, all people with retention on self-cath. If they're getting by and they don't mind voiding slowly, then they're not going to get self-cath. And then I do check in the, with them about three to four months later to see how they're doing. And then at that point in time, kind of come up arbitrarily with seeing them somewhere between six or seven months after their first injection, and then determine what, what kind of frequency uh, injections we'll be doing. And I think Kevin's going to talk a little bit about that too. So over to you, Kev. Okay, thanks, Greg. Um, so I sense that we don't have a, a ton of time left, and I really want to make sure we have some um, discussion time at the end. So I'm going to just I'm going to put a, a quick uh, bow on the Botox uh, discussion, and then um, provide a bit of a balance talking about PTNS and SNM at the end here. So um, the um, the first uh, slide opens up just uh, just a bit of thought provoking discussion here. Um, sorry, next slide there, Rich. Um, how would you manage timing a injection? Oh, Greg's got it. Okay. Um, how would you manage the timing of repeat injections in your practice? Um, and I've heard, you know, I think this is going to depend largely on uh, where you where you practice. Uh, some people prefer to just let give the patient instruction to call the office when uh, the efficacy starts to wear off and they need another injection. I think that's fine if you have the if you're fleet of foot and can get them get them in uh, quickly for their next injection. Um, others uh, will automatically book injections at six month intervals. And then I think many of us like uh, Richard and I uh, would start at a six month interval, but as you go forward on the second, third, fourth injection, you can start to tailor it to the patient to either um, bring them in a little bit earlier if they wear off earlier or um, stretch the interval out as far as uh, as far as they can get away with. So any comments on that, uh, Greg? No, I do the same thing. Everyone's a little yeah. different and we just kind of figure it out after after a couple injections, yeah. we figure that out. I think in Canada, that's probably the most common. I think there are a few sites that just let the patients call and, and, and book, but that's probably be my guess. That's the exception to the rule. Um, when to re-inject, um, so when the efficacy uh, diminishes, but then you have to know kind of what your what your trigger is. But um, I think the, the one rule to go by is no sooner than three months. I think that one we can all agree on because that's that would be off label. 
Um, and uh, beyond that, all right. Um, so no sooner than three months, we know that. And then from there, I think work with work with each patient as you go and, and you'll figure out uh, your interval. I try and counsel people to try and aim for the, the longest interval they can get they, they can get away with over time. But um, initially it's every six months. Um, uh, potential reasons for lack of diminished response. Okay, so what, what if you're not getting the response that you expect from a patient? We always expect high fives, as Rich likes to say. Um, well, first thing, it could just be that you've underdosed them, and it's typical for us to start at 100 units for idiopathic OAB, but with times, we, we find that some people need 200 units, and I have a lot of people on 150 units as well. Um, so that's, so dose is, is one element of it. Um, it could be also the patient, um, you know, just their, their expectations are out of line or what they expected to happen, um, you know, doesn't, uh, doesn't line up with, uh, with what you expected to happen. And uh, so you can use, you need some objective data sometime like, like PROs and voiding diaries can be helpful to, to line things up. Uh, there can be some technical things if uh, the Botox has been out uh, non-refrigerated for too long, um, it may lose efficacy. Or if, um, if there's been a problem with reconstitution, uh, that can be a problem. Uh, urinary tract infections, worsening of underlying disease, unrecognized uh, retention, uh, these are all um, factors that can play in. So lots of, lots of things to query when patients come back um, thinking maybe, maybe it didn't work out as well as they wanted it to. Um, another thing is uh, there is in theory um, a suggestion that Botox might not work as well in the bladder, for example, if they had just uh, not long ago had an injection uh, at another location. Um, but I think for, for the most part, we're pretty good at finding out if patients are getting Botox for other reasons, cosmetic or, or spasticity, et cetera, and making sure that we time things accordingly. It should be uh, either at least three months later or within uh, 48 hours. Um, all right, so what to do if a patient comes back and says, no, that Botox didn't work? Well, first thing we would do is check their residual volume. Um, if the residual volume's high, uh, that's, obviously, that's obviously a problem that's going to explain their, their symptoms. Um, second thing uh, to look at would be at, uh, talking about their, um, their oral medication. So you can add in a medication or get them back on the medication if, it, if they stopped it. And then third thing to do would be to adjust uh, their dose um, upwards if need be. And then a lot of discussion there with the patient. What were they really expecting? Um, you know, or maybe uh, go back to the history. Did they have mixed incontinence and it, it did help their urgency, but they're still leaking with stress and that's a problem for them. Yeah, um, Kevin, there's, there's two questions. There's just two questions sure. that really um, hit on the idea of tachyphylaxis you know, does it become less effective with time? Somebody was wondering, and can we predict who that person is, patient characteristics, and then a straight up, is there evidence of tachyphylaxis? And I, I suppose after doing Botox for so many years on some people, um, I would say that I have increased the dose. I would say that I have added back in medication. I would say that I have even got people on a beta-3 agonist and anticholinergic and, and Botox. So. Is that tachyphylaxis? Is that a progression of, of the disease of, of OAB or neurogenic bladder? 
Um, I would feel like it's my neurogenic patients that I probably continue to push the envelope on, but I really haven't looked at that. So any thoughts on that, Kev? Taxi tachyphylaxis? Yeah, I, I, I don't know. Um, I, I don't know of good evidence uh, around it. And, um, you know, I, I guess there, there have been occasional patients where it, it you know, they're anecdotally, it seems like maybe their efficacy wanes, but um, it could sometimes just be their enthusiasm wanes um, when I get into it with them. So I don't, re I, I don't really have a great answer to that one, Rich, uh, mm -hmm. but I, I, I don't, certainly don't see a lot. I don't know if Greg has anything else to add there. No, I don't. Same as you guys. Yeah. Um, so some, uh, some troubleshooting tips, and I wanted to touch on a couple of these here. Um, just to help for those who might be new injectors. Uh, failure of the patient to tolerate the procedure. Well, um, some people like Rich Baverstock can talk a person through, probably through anything. I'm not, I'm not sure why he does any surgery under a GA, frankly, just he can just <laughs> hold their hand and talk, talk them through it. But um, yeah, so a few, a few things. Um, some, there are occasional patients where you have to bail on the outpatient uh, Botox injection and go to the operating room. Um, that's the exception of the rule, of course. Some pa some patients need a need a break. Um, something that's not on here is, um, you know, things like you can suggest next time patient brings some music in, uh, put headphones on, bring a support person, um, have a nurse hold their hand through through the injection. All these things uh, uh, are very useful. And then the last thing I'll say is that Greg made a good point. Sometimes you you want to do your your injection pattern backwards where you you go up uh, more towards the back wall and work your way towards the trigone rather than the other way around. So you hit those uh, more sensitive sites last. Um, bleeding. So there's a few a few options here. We do have cautery in our in our suite, and uh, occasionally we will pull out a small uh, bug the electrode and cauterize uh, a site. Um, I will also sometimes um, just push the needle up against the site and put uh, put direct pressure on a site. Uh, which works very well. It's it's a little uncomfortable with me, the nurse, and the patient all staring at the clock, and you know, sodium-like stuff. Um, but it uh, it does work. Um, it just you have to be patient, and uh, and also just um, you know, um, um, washing the bladder, uh, having the patient really hydrate well afterwards, and generally generally clears. But a significant bleeder, we just cauterize quickly. It's quick and efficient. Um, Post-procedure um, retention, there's some guidelines here. Um, I think we've, we've covered most of this, but generally if they're symptomatic um, with retention, we will offer them CIC. We do a, we do a visit with our nurse at a couple weeks post-procedure and check their residual. If it's high and they're symptomatic, we do CIC. If it's low or if they're an asymptomatic and still avoiding reasonable amounts, then we'll just uh, wait it out and, and follow them closely. Um, rarely patients need a, need an indwelling catheter. Some, some patients are kind of on that threshold already and, and uh, with a little encouragement, they, they just go to, to regular Botox, maybe even a higher dose and then, and then commit long-term to the catheters. But um, every individual is different. Infections, uh, I think we've covered this. Um, so a couple discussion points. Um, and I'll maybe start with start with Rich. If you want to touch on 
some some barriers you think might um, might exist, uh, especially for a new um, injector out there. Um, patient related, typical patient related barriers or clinical uh, barriers. Any important um, points you want to uh, discuss? Mm -hmm. Yeah, lots of points. I guess we'll be mindful of the time for the people as well because we have a few more slides. But if I was starting out brand new, um, the first thing you would want to do is talk to your nurses in the clinic and figure out. Is this a one spot or a two spot for Botox? Uh, because that's going to change your ability to, to do cystos. Because this, if you really get into this, this is a monumental piece of anybody's cysto practice. Um, so consider that. Um, I would try and get the best needle that I could right from the start. So talk to people that do a lot um, and get the best needle and the best setup. And then I would also try to get away from the local anesthetic installation and that waiting period because I think. I think that's going to allow you to be as efficient as possible. And then plan your team for that post-operative period um, or post-procedure. You know, who's going to see them in a couple of weeks? Do you have flow and scan? What's going to happen if they need to catheterize? And the sooner you figure that out, I think the better. And I would say talk to people around that do lots or reach out to your um, representative from the company and they could put you in touch with, with one of us that has done a lot. and. We can probably help you through with that if you're just thinking of getting going. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think the um, and and the second point there, I think we'll we'll leave uh, to the end if there's uh, more discussion time. So let's go to the next slide. So th this uh, this slide um, we could focus a lot of attention on. I think um, I'll just point out a few things here. These are for the new injector out there. These are some considerations for setting up your um, clinic. Um, and most of these are all things that we've we've focused on. Um, the the pre-op counseling and education piece, I think, is critical. Um, some of the other things are more um, uh, more individualized choice of scopes and where you're going to do it and your setup and all that kind of stuff. I think a, a few important things I would say here are number one, um, you need really um, well-trained and dedicated nursing staff. And uh, I want to give a shout out to all the nurses who might be on the, the webinar uh, tonight. We certainly, uh, uh, none of us can do, um, can do all these uh, treatments without them and take such good care of the patients. And they're great cheerleaders for the patients too. So um, you need to work with your, with your nursing team. And, um, and um, you know, as Rich did a, um, an in-service for our nurses recently, those, those things go a long way to, you know, keeping this as a, as a team approach. Um, and then a couple of logistical things. I think a, li a lift for wheelchair patients and an available cautery unit are are critical, um, as we've uh, as we've kind of mentioned with the cautery. But the lifts obviously important because we're doing a lot of neurogenic patients as well. Um, and if there's other considerations or other comments on that, um, just fire them into the text and we'll uh, into the uh, program and we'll discuss them at the end. So it's my pleasure to talk about the PTNS procedure and sacral neuromodulation quickly. Um, now, I, um, full disclosure, I haven't done PTNS, but I can talk to you a little bit. And uh, it's been a while since I did neuromodulation, but I have done it. I apologize to any experienced um, folks out there who might be on the call, and if they want to jump in with any comments, um, that's fine. But I think the important thing here to balance this discussion is to point out that um, not only Botox, but uh, these two procedures, PTNS and neuromodulation, are, um, are, are valid um, 
third line treatments for, for OIB and, and sometimes um, uh, in some instances they, they may work significantly better than Botox for some patients. So PTNS just quickly involves uh, um, an electrode needle uh, inserted just uh, above the medial uh, malleolus and stimulates posterior tibial nerve. Um, each session lasts about 30 minutes, so patients have to come in, sit in a chair for 30 minutes, and uh, basically be um, stimulated in the nerve. And you, you increase the intensity of stimulation and, uh, based on patient tolerability. Next slide. Um, not a lot of recent uh, information about P PTNS and, and not huge um, uptake across the country, but there was a study a few years ago that uh, was interesting um, that's pointed out here, basically says that PTNS uh, can be a good augment to the effectiveness of oral um, antimuscarinics, in this case, sulfenicin. Um, and there's certainly other uh, good evidence um, that has led to it being a, a recommended third line um, uh, treatment. Next slide. There are some challenges with PTNS though and some significant considerations. Um, it has a reasonable success rate, about 70%, depending on how you um, uh, define it. Um, it can be costly pay in our province, patients have to pay. And um, there are some contraindications that are listed that are listed here. But um, if you go to the next slide, the, the biggest problem with PTNS is uh, compliance. And this slide would suggest that uh, in this study of 146 patients, um, essentially if patients like it, they like it a lot. And the small majority of people will stay on it. Um, but most people fall off the curve because it's just difficult to keep um, committing and going in over and over again uh, for a significant amount of time out of their day and, and expense. Uh, so quickly on sacral neuromodulation. Um, for those of you not familiar with sacral neuro neuromodulation, this is just a very brief in introduction. Um, it's typically a two-stage process. The first is called a peripheral nerve evaluation. Uh, where a lead is placed down through one of the sacral foramina, either by palpation or fluoroscopy, then uh, motor and sensory uh, responses are tested. And uh, if there's a good, um, uh, a good uh, response, uh, the patient is sent home with uh, diaries and um, questionnaires. And if there's more than 50% improvement in those, then stage two permanent implant is done. Uh, where you're basically in introducing what a so-called bladder pacemaker, implanting it in the subcutaneous tissue of the upper buttocks. Next slide. Um, success rate with this, with stage one implants, uh, with the PNE is about 70%. And in the treatment, treatment phase, so that, that more highly selected group that responded um, positively initially, 87% at one month and 62% at five years. So really a good response. And now, um, you know, now these patients aren't having to come in uh, all the time for repeat treatment. So it's a big win in those cases. Um, some, down, some downsides to this, uh, need for repeat treatments long-term um, and some more, it's obviously more invasive and you get uh, into some surgical complications, some requirements for anesthesia, et cetera. And then there's, it, it can be fiddly with uh, reprogramming, battery replacement, et cetera, and also very expensive. So in Alberta, it's, um, there's limits to it in terms of how many can be implanted because of the cost of it. Next slide. Overall, the rate of complications with uh, neuromodulation, about 30 to 40% within uh, five years. Um, and uh, there's fairly high reoperation rate overall. 
but uh, despite that, um, patient, you know, still have a lot of satisfi satisfied patients and still widely used. Um, typical uh, complications are pretty minor, regional pain, uh, some change in defecation, infection, electrode malposition, these types of things. Um, so general, generally considered minor um, side effects or complications. Next slide. So uh, at, at this point, um, I'll maybe turn it over to, to Rich, but um, um, I know that uh, Rich and Greg personally aren't doing um, PTNS and, and SNM as we, as we discussed at the beginning, but um, you do have it available to uh, refer patients for. So, you know, how do you, what role does it play, I guess, in your practice in terms of, uh, you know, what, how you offer patients these different third line options? So, so with, with sacral neuromodulation, obviously it has some other potential usages, um, some dysfunctional voiders or, um, or pain. So again, develop a relationship with the people that you can refer to and then I'll often text um, uh, in Alberta, Gary or Joe, and say, here's a urodynamics, what do you think? Or I'll start the conversation. I may carry on with the Botox, even while the patient is has seen one of them and gotten on a list um, and transitioned from there. Now, obviously, I, I don't present it as there's Botox and there's sacronomorodulation. Um, one you can wait a long time for, one we could get going on much sooner. I'll usually get going on what is available and then we'll move on to sacral neuromodulation. Um, Greg, because you have both available more locally, what, how would you handle that? A very similar approach. I think that uh, because Botox is accessible and fairly inexpensive with, with better, much better coverage now, uh, and it's acceptable to most patients. I would say the majority of patients will go the Botox way first. I've had some patients who it either doesn't work, and then I scratch my head as to whether I have the right diagnosis, or patients who, uh, you know, you get the patient who says, do, do I have to do this for the rest of my life? Do I have to come in here every six to nine months? I don't really want to do this. Is there something more permanent? And I think that that's a good person who should be referred for consideration of sacral neuromodulation. Um, and some patients will come in and, and tell you that they've heard about posterior tibial nerve stimulation and, and are seeking it out. Those patients are often um, men and women who I think are more invested into doing pelvic floor physiotherapy as well, if they haven't. Just the, the, the kind of people that, that perhaps may not want to go a little bit more invasive and want to do something a little bit less. Um, but I would say by and large, you know, uh, Ashley Cox at our center does, she has no limit to the number of uh, sacral neuromodulation she can do, but I would, I, I think I'll speak for her. She, she may be on this, um, but uh, she certainly approaches it with Botox as, as, as something to consider first and sacral neuromodulation second, I think. Okay. There's a, there was a good so, question. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Kev. Well, I was just going to say, I think we're basically out of time. So um, maybe Let's see, uh, Maybe, Cassian yeah. gave us Cassian gave After us that. the green light. To, we're allowed to go a little bit farther, and I'll just make sure we address okay. some of these questions. Um, there was Great. a good question on thoughts on combined Botox and somebody put Volcomid in mixed patients. But you know, I, I would suppose you could back up and say, you know, somebody with mixed incontinence. Uh, what do you go after first? Do you go after the stress or the urge? Um, Kev, do you want to speak to that? 
Yeah, well, there there is um, there is a good uh, recent paper looking at um, combination for mixed incontinence and and shows that it can work really well. I think the the big challenge here is um, is the retention issue, and I would I would typically do at least one Botox injection first to make sure they don't go into retention because if they go into retention after a combination, then you you might not know which which one put them in retention and that's going to make ongoing decisions a little tougher. So I would typically um, try a Botox injection first and then if, if all is well, then I might time a, a Bulkamid injection as an example with my next Botox injection, um, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I would agree. I usually say hammer the bladder um, and then, then circle around to the stress incontinence and then you may come back to the OAB um, the bo you know, Botox and a sling at the same time would make me nervous for the retention that you said, and probably the same if I was doing a bulking agent, just, just, just worrying about that. But if they were a veteran with the Botox, you may, you may also move on in a stress treatment. Um, there's somebody from BC that said that they were using PTNS, but the, it's no longer available as the company quit distributing it in BC. Are others still using it? And if so, via who, um, I, I haven't found a good source. It was been many years since anybody presented uh, to me an option for buying a machine with the leads at the time. Um, it was a $1,200 for six, um, six treatments. Some of the physios say, hey, we could do that with our little stimulators, but I don't know if anybody has found uh, somebody that's doing that. Um, the, there was a question about the Labyrinth needle um, at the five millimeter setting. Um, we haven't used the Labyrinth needle ourselves for a, a very long time. Um, and we use the Cook-Williams for the rigid and we use the Olympus for the flexible. And we're very interested in looking at the uh, Coloplast bony needle for, uh, because it was designed for, for Botox and penetration. As, and the Labyrinth needle, I remember using it and it does have the ability to change a setting. Does anybody have a comment on that? Well, I, I, I just used... I just use the uh, coloplast needle. I haven't used any of the other needles, so I, I do like the coloplast needle. And that's the the bony yeah. B O N E E. Um, yeah. And then there was, um, you know, what does the, the panels uh, definition? Oh, sorry, go ahead, Kev. I was just going to say the, uh, you know, the advantage of the, uh, you know, needle where you can adjust the uh, depth of penetration. I think is excellent. As, you know, um, if you're a new injector. Um, because I think most, you know, the needles we use are, you know, fixed and, and longer, but we, we adjust our depth basically by feel. So if that's, if that's a concern, then one that you could adjust the depth penetration on, um, would make sense. And I'd probably, um, probably be in the, around three, three millimeters, three to five millimeters. And there was a question about the, the definition of refractory OAB according to the panel. And what was interesting, and if we look at the summary here, treatment of medication <clears throat> refractory overactive bladder includes um, treatment with onobotulinum toxin, PTNS, and SNS. Um, and I think when we were making the slide package up, this term medication refractory um, came up as, as a latest term. And I think most of us would call it refractory overactive bladder. And I would suppose there's definitions that we're gonna use uh, to decide when to move a patient on. And then there may be definitions that you have to achieve in your province. Perhaps in your province, you have to prove uh, 
like in British Columbia, I think some has some strict rules on having proved how long somebody has been on a medication before they can get Botox. So um, I, I would probably say that's probably your biggest definition if you want to move on from refractory is what is that definition that's going to allow you to move on to the next level of treatment, particularly if there's a coverage uh, discussion that needs to happen. The, there are three good treatments. Um, I always am envious when we're at a meeting and the Americans can speak of basically switching between one and the other and let's do your SNS tomorrow and your, and so I'm always envious of having that access, but as of right now, we don't have that in Canada. Um, but it's a, it's a reasonable discussion to have with your patients that there are some other options and then you may get going. And the final point, and, and obviously there was a lot of talk about the technique and the, the perioperative uh, treatment with onobotulinum toxin. And I think that really is an opportunity. These slides will be available for us to talk on behalf of the CUA and thank you to the CUA and AbbVie. There'll be a, a, for us to do smaller regional meetings perhaps provincial meetings where we could talk with a group of injectors or, or people that want to get going and we can really dive into um, some of the barriers. So we went through it and I'm, I'm amazed that we filled the time and I'm sad that we're going to all say goodbye, but I think we would each want to do this locally with a group of people and really dive into what are the barriers are that are going to stop you from maybe getting going or what made you fail before and you want to try it again. And so we would welcome those conversations and they can come through the COA, they could come through uh, the representative or they can come from colleague to colleague. So I, I think that'll be my final summary um, on that point. But I do wanna thank again, the COA for putting this event on and uh, I sure would love to be doing this live and in person at the COA one day and whoever's on there, hello and probably good night. Any, Good Kevin, night, everybody. Yeah. And don't forget well, there is a evaluation. Um, you'll get an email if you registered and then you can get a certificate for participation in, in that email as well. So don't forget to do the evaluation and we want to thank um, you for taking the time tonight. Go put your kids to bed if they're crawling all over you. Yeah, okay. thanks Good again, night. Uh, Rich, to the COA and thanks Rich for uh, bringing it all together.